I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Karen Swallow Pryor. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are answering your questions about Charlotte Bronte's novel, Jane Eyre. We've come to the end of our Jane Eyre conversation. I mean, you never really come to the end of a conversation about Jane Eyre, but we've come to the end of our time to discuss Jane Eyre on this podcast right now. Karen, just want to say again, thank you so much for being here. And um, it'll be, I mean, we're glad to have Tim back, but it'll be a little weird not, you know, looking at you over the Zoom chat, having you talk about a book you love. And hearing my dogs. Right, Bart, hearing your dogs. The right. UBS man, yeah. Right. It's an essential part. It's an essential part of the show. <laughs> I like that the UPS man decides to come on Thursdays right when we're recording, like consistently. Yeah. Well, we are here to answer uh, listener questions. We've got plenty. So let's just dive right in. I think we're going to have a lot to talk about and have a hard time even getting to half of these questions is in, in, you know, that's my guess. There's a question here from Sarah. This is just a very, I think we can answer this in just a couple seconds, even Karen, Sarah is wondering if this book was originally published as a complete novel or in three volumes. And then if it was in three, as many novels were at the time, was it all together at once or was it, um, a, was it published serially? Um, it was published all together at once. It wasn't a serial okay. novel, right? I figured that was that was an easy one to just you know we get we get get a good rhythm here. Just knock knock a couple out. This one will take a little bit longer time, but I don't think we'll be uh, take too long. Also from Sarah's group of uh, local close readers, and she says, "Is Jane a reliable narrator?" And she says, "Given past discussions, it might seem like we're poking fun, but we really do want to know if, since Jane is looking back on her life, were to interpret her memories and impressions as accurate." Uh, Karen, I'll let you jump on that one as well. And Heidi, if you want to jump in, you can. But I, I, Karen, I know you've got you've done some studying of the evolution of narrators in literature. So where does where does Jane fit in on that continuum? Yeah, I mean. <laughs> When we use the term, the technical term, you know, an unreliable narrator, we're usually talking about an author who has intentionally created a narrator that we are not supposed to trust. That's different from saying a narrator is unreliable because a narrator is a reflection of a fallen, flawed, limited human being. Right. And so, you know, Jane is not, she is supposed to be reliable to us. She she is hmm. telling her genuine story um, the best that she can to her ability from her subjective perspective. Uh, that's sort of a given, but Bronte wasn't trying, she wasn't intentionally presenting us with an, with an unreliable narrator, which is really something that's much more of a later modern development. Hmm. Some of these questions are going to take us very deep and... I think this next one might be might be the next step into that. I don't know. I honestly, at this point, we could spend thirty minutes on any given question. So, um, and again, Karen, Heidi, jump in if I ask one of you to answer it first. Just you know, speak Not over wrestle. me. I'm just here to yeah. I'm just here to you know throw questions at you. Uh, Katie Sullivan asks: Does Jane change throughout the novel, or does she recognize and become more of herself? She said that she, uh, Katie said, I love the conversations about Rochester and Sinjin, but I love a deeper character and analyzation of Jane. In the last podcast, I think David alluded to Pilgrim's Progress and how Jane walks through her trials and overcomes them. So how can we understand her best? And then she uses, she creates a hashtag, I want to be Jane when I grow up. So, you know, maybe that hashtag will take, take on a life of its own, Katie, but you know, you never know with these things. So Heidi, does Jane yeah. change throughout the novel or does she recognize and become more of herself? It's an interesting distinction in, in it, literature in general, actually. 
No, I really like this question. Uh, and also, Katie, if Plamanda can take off, then I think yeah. your hashtag has a chance. So um, I, I think that the emphasis for Jane is less on overcoming sin and more on a true ownership of self and also healing from some of the wounds of her childhood. Although they, I'm sure that the way I'm phrasing that is anachronistic. Uh, that's something we might say here. We do say in, in our time and back then that might, might not have been the, 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 the way to phrase that, but that is the idea. What we have is a very wounded little girl uh, who steps into empowerment and, um, and a deep spiritual walk and an overcoming of suffering. And in that way, she becomes more and more of who she is. But it's less about kind of this modern idea of the overcoming of like character flaws. We see a lot less of that in Jane than we do in Rochester. Anything to add to that, Karen? Yeah, I would just say, um, and, and David just mentioned this, I think one of you did, Um it's important to remember that you know who this narrator is and how this story is being narrated. We learn at the very end when she says, you know, after everything is resolved and she says, I have now been married 10 years. So this is someone who has been this, all of the, these events, the, the last of these events occurred 10 years ago. So she's looking back on her life. We see a similar thing in great expectations when, when Pip is telling his story, looking back in his adulthood. Um, and so that makes so, so she she does grow. I agree with what Heidi said it's really more about about finding her place in the world and her and her and and her sense of self and grabbing hold of that. Um, but she's telling us about that she's reflecting on it and telling us about it after it's already happened, um, which is different from a style of narration it which is happening in the moment you know like as as it's happening and so um so one i don't know what difference that makes i I know when we're reading it it feels different but i do remember in grad school when i was studying this novel it was the same professor who asked i mentioned on an earlier episode who asked the whole class you know is it would it be wrong for a married person to have an affair with someone if if the partner wouldn't know because they were incapacitated or whatever would it still be wrong um which of course it would be um but he made the point and i've been thinking about it literally ever since and i still don't have an answer he said the fact that if if you are living happily ever after you don't tell your story like you actually Hmm. there's a you know that there there must be why is she 10 years later telling all this unless there's something some desire unfulfilled some longing something um which of course is just the human condition no matter how happy we are Mm -hmm. but still why is she telling this story now um and does it what does it suggest about her still unfulfilled desire and i don't have the answer it's just the question my professor posed that i've been thinking about for all these years (laughs) it's just stuck with you (laughs) yes so uh jonathan asked another question about getting to know Jane. And he points out that on page 703 of the... of Prior edition. Yeah, of your edition, yeah. <laughs> uh, Bronte writes, and reader, do you think I feared him in his blind ferocity? If you do, it, I, it, there's a typo here, I think. Do you, 
you know little about me. So then Jonathan asks, what is Bronte and Jane saying about the reader, especially given that it has been 700 pages of opportunities to get to know her? <laughs> I find that it's, it's interesting because there, there's like a little meta discourse kind of going on there, breaking down with the third wall, if you will. Yeah, I, I guess I always just took that as kind of a rhetorical question and didn't read too much more into it beyond that. But I think he's bringing up the important point of the uh, of that meta narrative that you're talking about and the the conversation between the reader and the narrator, which has intrigued scholars and commentators on this novel for you know ever since its publication. Who is who is she talking to? Who's the book for? Right. Um, and Karen, I'd be really interested to hear from you how that fits into other novels of the time period and what you think Jane is, you know, Bronte is doing through Jane by communicating with the reader instead of just leaving it. Yeah, I mean, this was a common kind of um, uh, device used. And I think part of it is just there was a you know, print culture was was relatively new. It was emerging. It was growing stronger. And so there was a consciousness that um, someone was writing for a reading audience. And I can't imagine, you know, I don't think people really do that now because we just have sort of already gotten lost into, there, there's less consciousness of it because we have read and written so many novels since then. So maybe, you know, it's, it's partly, I think, a, a, a holdover from, you know, from theater, from drama. But there was no, yeah, this is, this is the point in the development of the novel where early novels were pretending not to be novels. Now we have novelists who are, who are, who are consciously writing novels and mm. they're okay with that. And so, mm. um, yeah. And I, That's I just, interesting. I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just saying that's interesting because now, the, even now there's like, an extreme self-consciousness about writing novels to the point where you're trying to almost like subvert <laughs> the self-consciousness. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think it fits into that sort of line of development. Okay. So it's always a little abrupt when we move on to the next question yeah, yeah. on these shows, but there's two more, two more questions that I want to bring up that are kind of about getting to know Jane. Cause I think there were a handful of those. Uh, this one comes from Julia and she says, I'm always kind of troubled by books where the orphan who undergoes significant trauma is this happy, cheerful, accomplished, pleasant person. Anne, for example, in End of Green Gables. Obviously, obviously, she says, this can happen, but my experience working with kids has not been that the ones who have been subject to significant trauma are so easily likable and enjoyable to be around. I realize it's a novel and not the DSM, but I'm still kind of bothered by it. Any takes on this, especially from Heidi? I guess, and Heidi, for those who don't know, you, your training is in yeah. well, counseling, right? Yeah, my master's is in is is in counseling, and so, um, and it is interesting. I think just as a reader too, with uh, with literary training and psychological training to have those things meet together. And that tends to be how I read in general, as most of you who are following along with the show regularly know that. I think that there's two things going on. One is that you're absolutely right that uh, this is not a necessarily realistic portrayal of somebody with such significant kind of trauma in childhood. However, as we've talked about before, novels have different rules than real life. And uh, one thing that's really wonderful, I think, about orphan novels and, and to keep in mind for those of us who are looking at novels like this through the framework of evaluating based on DSM criteria, as you say, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual uh, for, for Disorders, for those of you who aren't familiar with DSM, for those of us who do have that lens, especially in our 
personal lives, whether through children who've been through trauma, adoption, those kinds of things, uh, foster care um, or professional training is to, I do challenge you to kind of set that aside because the orphan novel is its own thing. And I want you to think about children who play orphan all the time, like normal, healthy kids. My, my kids did this all the time, especially my daughter. She loved to play orphan for years. And the thing about the orphan kind of fantasy is this idea of a child unrestrained from parental authority. And, and a, with a child unrestrained from parental authority, then you have a child who's approaching the world with a mindset of possibility and hope, right? And of course, a true orphan who's been through that kind of deep core trauma isn't looking at the world through the possibility and hope, but a character unmoored from societal society's expectations, um, a, a child, a character who is approaching the world as an adventure, uh, as with the idea of the, the, the clean slate, the fresh start, that is what we're getting at when we talk about orphan narratives within literature. And so I would say, for those of you who troubled by that, try to kind of put that aside as a bit of an anachronism, because Bronte would know doesn't have the DSM and isn't writing about a traumatized child, (laughs) Uh, even though she does include the trauma. I'm not negating the trauma, but because she actually deals with that really adroitly, like her, her portrayal of the impact on the soul from Jane's childhood is actually really realistic. And even some of Jane's kind of withdrawal from, um, and kind of her hesitation to engage in the world, even as an adult, um, and her hesitation, her inability to trust fully, that is pretty realistic. Um, but she doesn't have PTSD, right? Which most orphaned children do these days. Um, that's understood, but put that aside when you're reading an orphan narrative, especially a children's book, we do not need to be reading or, you know, Pippi Longstocking and telling our kids how unrealistic it is because she doesn't have PTSD, right? We're looking at the world as possibility, hope, adventure, the ability for that character to engage and to find themselves uh, without being in a sense, air quotes, restrained by parental authority. Can I take this one too? I know we have yeah, to. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, now, yeah, please, yeah. Now, this is so, I love this perspective from like a counselor, everything uh, that is so, so true and helpful. A couple of other things to consider is that childhood was traumatic in this time. Georgiana and Alada didn't have the best childhoods either, and they had their mother. And mm-hmm. this is a time when children, the children of the wealthy were put out to wet nurses and then sent off to schools, and the children of the poor were often abandoned. Um, so the idea of being an orphan in this time was just not that different from the ravages of childhood for most people. You know, different critics talk about childhood being invented in the 18th century. Um, it just it was not a, a stage and a, mm. and a time in human development that we think of. I mean, it was, but we didn't think about it. It wasn't thought about then the way we think about it now. And then the other thing, yeah. and this is just a tip. I've written about this in in book. I've written about it in articles. I don't remember if I wrote about it in the introduction here, but being an orphan is the modern condition. So the fact that we, the modern condition is 
choosing our own way and not assuming whatever mantle it is that what Heidi talked about. It's not just authority, but it's also just everything. We don't have to be the same religion our parents are. We don't have to be in the same social class our parents were. We can choose our who whom we marry. So the modern condition is one in which we are all orphaned in that sense because we have the ability to choose all of these things that was new. And that's what all novels in the 18th and 19th century are about. And that's why there are so many orphans in them because orphans are symbolically what everyone was in this new modern age where all these choices mm. were in front of us for the first time. Mm. I think that's such a good point, Karen. I'm so glad you said that, that with during this time, to your point, children were just, there, there was no sense of like protecting this idyllic childhood, right? And that we have this, some kind of responsibility to children. Children really just kind of need to get over it and grow up, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, they need to help out. Yeah. Right. Like they, yeah. And a lot of, a lot of people had children to like help on the farm. So if mm -hmm. they're three, they're just useless. Right? right. It's just like, get or just bigger. to be, or to be heirs, <laughs> you know, yes. if they're yeah. wealthy yeah. to be heirs, right. right? Yeah. To continue the line. Right. Uh, yeah. So I think that's a great point. And then also this idea of in order to unmoor a human being from a received tradition, they had to be an orphan. I really think that's incredibly important, what you said, and I want to highlight that. Uh, and so you see a lot of orphans in these, uh, in, in, in early novels, because otherwise they would have had the church. They would have had the tradition. They would have had the way to eat at a table. They would have had, you know, all, they would have the money and the education, and there would be no chance for them to break out of that, either for better or, and this is important too, or for worse, right? That tradition protected these children and allowed them to grow up um, in, in a society that didn't value childhood. So anyway, I just thought that that was brilliant. What you I mean, said. this is, this is what the modern self is. Yes. The modern self is orphaned from tradition. Right. So we don't understand why they have to lose their parents in a story, right? Because <laughs> we all just see the world as possibility and hope, but that wasn't the case. Right. Well, I'm going to assume that in this next question, there is possibility and hope as well. So this comes from Astrid via email. And she says uh, that her question regards Jane's obsession with physical appearance. So she says that Jane as narrator seems to spend a lot of time focusing on how people look or how people, or, or how people think people look as evidenced by how many people comment on how unfortunate looking Rochester is or how beautiful Blanche is. Are Jane's frequent observations on physical appearance a convention of the style, like the Gothic style, or is the author telling us something about the character of Jane and how she thinks of others in terms of their physical appearance, perhaps in contrast or support of their personal character? So on the one hand, is this... A convention of the form, a formal convention, or is this meant to be something that tells us about the character of Jane and the way she thinks about other people? Karen, you're unmuted, so I'm gonna let you take that okay. one first in a reversal of last time. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, so so appearances were very important, physical appearances, not only in this time, but go all the way back to Ch Chaucer, the Canterbury Tales. Um, there's a whole, mm. you know, symbolism in the way the pilgrims look, and there was an understanding. I mean. I'll put this in sort of like the crassest terms, I guess, but I, because I talk about this a lot in my classes, but I, but I think it really makes sense putting it this way. If you were poor, you did not look good. You know, you, you weren't healthy. You didn't have good teeth. Your clothes didn't look good. You were probably dirty. And by comparison, if you were rich, and that's pretty much all there was, right, is rich and poor, then you were going, you would look 
good. People could tell by looking at you that you were rich. People could tell by looking at you that you were poor. Uh, And so appearances actually did communicate much more than than they do now when a you know a wealthy person might be wearing khakis and a you know a t-shirt um and mm. poor people might be wearing some knockoff gucci i don't you know i don't even know what i'm talking about but but um <laughs> the point is that you in those days you could tell a lot by a person's physical appearances and so um because you could tell a lot it mattered and, and then mm. what writers do is kind of mix it up a little bit and say oh rochester didn't you know he didn't look physically attractive but in that sense, looks were deceiving. So, or he, but he carried himself in a certain right. way as well. Yes, so. yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and now, now we have this idea of you can fake it. What do they say? Fake it till you make it, or something like you can fake looking like you're from a different class or whatever, however, or a different job, or you can look successful to to convince people that you are successful, which can ultimately lead to you being successful. Um, but even like Mark Twain writes he has a lot on this too in Huckleberry Finn and in Tom Sawyer, but especially in Huckleberry Finn. And then you see it in The Prince and the Popper and so forth. It wasn't just a British, you know, British female writers convention. You know, you see it all throughout 19th century literature, I think. Heidi, do you want to touch on this? Yeah, I think that uh, another thing that was addressed in the question, which was insightful, is the idea of the outward person reflecting the inward character. And that was, I mean, very believed. So I you see a lot of phrenology in Jane Eyre, which is like the the examination of the shape of a character's head um, and yeah. what that will tell you about the character or the palms of their hands, those kinds of things. Very useful notes on that in the book, by the way. Yes, Karen. very useful. Uh, and it's it's interesting. It's an interesting study. You know, for, for example, we even have some um, throwbacks to that. Like when you say that something is highbrow, the idea of that comes from phrenology, that, that intelligent people have bigger heads and higher foreheads. And so they were highbrow, right? Um, and so there's there's still some vestiges of that way of thinking within our colloquial language that we don't know necessarily where they come from. Uh, and that is a big part of Jane Eyre. She could tell by looking at Rochester and the shape of his head and the shape of his hands that he had a good character. It had been maybe distorted or degraded through making wrong choices, but at the core, his like the shape of his body told her something about him and about his character. And there was a belief that the outer man reflected the inner man. And, and you see that a lot in Jane Eyre. And then you also see, as, as our reader also pointed out, is her own obsession with the way that she looks, right? Like, and um, that she's not pretty and that people notice that and comment about it and talk about it. And then, so along with the idea of the outer person being reflected in the inner person is also the opposite of that. That what makes this novel so complex and interesting to think about right? And to interpret, because we also see that Jane has a beautiful soul and yet her, she isn't considered pretty by her own standards. And so that creates that contrast between the outer and the inner person, which adds another layer of complexity and interpretation for us as the reader to wrestle with as we're, as we're moving through uh, the novel. And so, uh, and they weren't illustrated. Of course, it's as simple as that. Like they, they, the uh, novelist had to actually describe how people looked so that we can, um, so that we as the reader can can form an idea in our head as well. There's a lot of um, textbooks, I guess for lack of a better word, exercise books for creative writing that use um, 19th century novelist descriptions of characters to, to teach you how to do description. 
Um, and a lot of times what they point out is, I think Janet Burroway talks about this in her two-part series on writing fiction. They talk about that oftentimes for different characters, there'd be different strategies for how you just introduce or describe the character. So sometimes it'd be like head to toe or toe to head or what they emphasize first about that character's description is meant to reflect something on, in the inner life and what they describe last is supposed to as well. So in the 19th century, um, that was especially pronounced. Now we, you often will see this most in like noir and crime novels and stuff where the, the, the detective go you know what you the detective just describes what they see all the time but a lot of literary fiction of the 21st century does away with such things because you know it's uh passe i guess <laughs> um because they're trying to subvert everything um i mean i'm overstating it but um we got a couple of questions on how people on approaches to reading chris to ask this question is he says my eyes have been opened to how differently the parts in this book are interpreted by modern readers. As I'm considering the wide spectrum of interpretation, I wonder what is causing the big chasm. As readers, should we read a book by first looking for the overarching themes before we begin to interpret the parts? And if so, is this true for all literature? This seems like I can't see the forest for the trees situation. Karen, thoughts on this? Well, Heidi's unmuted first. Should we let her go? For, I don't know how to do this anymore. <laughs> Karen, you're first. I, we're going to go with my gut. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it, it can. Okay. Yeah. This is a good question. So and there's two parts to it really. Yeah. I, I, I ask, so the, the first part is why is there a big chasm in the ways that people interpret? And, and then the second, is there? <laughs> the second part. Of, well, that's, and then the second one is, should we read a book by first looking at the, okay. the themes before the, mm -hmm. the big themes before we look at the parts? Um, so, uh, so personally, when I'm reading a new book that I've not read before, a, a book that's new to me, and I, and I only read books, there are so many books, so I will read a book that I know is a classic that I haven't read yet that I should read, or with contemporary newer literature, I read it, I read, I see that it's been well reviewed or won awards and I don't want to know any very much about it and then I just mm -hmm. dive in but I think that's because I'm I'm trained to read literature so I think I can find the themes pretty well and I I want to do mm -hmm. that for myself same with films actually I just want to know that it was well reviewed and I don't want to know anything else about it um but that's that's after years of doing this so that I do think um through teaching that it can be helpful um, to have an idea of kind of what a main idea is um, a major theme in going mm -hmm. in, in order to, to look for it. So, um, and, and then it can come down to prefer preference too, I guess, but um, yeah, and I, I don't know about the differences in interpretation, but I'm not saying they're not out there, but I don't know what sh she's talking about. Well, I think she's talking about, you know, for example, looking at, whether Rochester oh. is harmful, like it might just be what's causing that is that it's just, it's there's things that are in the zeitgeist right now. And so whatever is hottest in the zeitgeist, mm -hmm. and I don't mean that pejoratively, I just mean whatever people right, are talking right, about right. is going to be on your mind and you're going to notice it. In right. 1990, it's like every decade, there's a different dog that people are scared of. That's, that's right. actually true. Like in the 90s, it was the Rottweiler, right? So you saw a Rottweiler, you're scared of it. Now it's a pit bull. So you see a pit bull, you're scared of it. Um, <laughs> that's a really good I mean, example, by the way. <laughs> I mean, not everybody's scared of it. Right, but, no, you know. but it, it is what, yeah, yeah. I did so get, if it's, uh, yeah, it's I, on the mind right. of students and readers right. now, 
So we're aware okay. of that. In, in 1960, it probably wasn't. So, that's no, that's that what is, I would that's say good. is part of it. So I would say to that, I would say, and, and I think our discussion showed this, those complexities are built into the novel. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the troubling yeah. care qualities. They're features. They're, right. They're, they're part of it. Now, we might see them more clearly. They might bother us more. They jump out at us more, depending on, you know, mm-hmm. the current context. But um, this novel is a great novel because there are no, um, you know, there are no black and white characters, well, except for maybe Brocklehurst, um, you know, because. Just black. <laughs> yes. There are. Um, yeah. So those complexities are built in and that's what makes the novel great. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is such a good question. I think that, you know, the conversation we had in the last podcast about kind of reading backward through time, taking that step back and, and reading, reading old books on their own terms, rather than evaluating them by our terms, gives us a, a, a much more comprehensive um, understanding of literature and of ourselves. I think this is one of those novels, one of the reasons I love it, and it's in my top five, among one among many reasons, is that it's one of those novels that reads me, <laughs> that as I'm reading it, I feel like when I'm about to make a judgment, may, like I just feel this sense of, maybe don't make that judgment. Maybe read the book on its own terms instead of on yours, Heidi, right? And um it and pushes and the buttons find, for you. Yeah. And I find that that's, that always leads to a more rich and fruitful um, and transformative experience with the novel um, versus me sitting in judgment upon it and saying all of the reasons why this character is a failure and this character is, you know, that I, for me, that is the wrong way to read a novel. So I think that that's one. I also, I'm really intrigued by the question about the parts versus the whole, because you can't really read a novel based on the whole until you read the whole novel, right? You have to take it as a sum of its parts at first. Um, and I, I find that it is not very helpful to know about the themes of a novel before I read it. Um, because at that point, there's, I'm, I'm already reading it through a lens of other people's judgments. So I, I, I think it's impossible to read a novel based on its overarching themes without taking the parts into account the first time you read it without cheating, right? Like, however, I do think that that's why it's so important to reread. That's why these great novels open up to us again and again and again. When I first read The Odyssey, I read it for the plot, right? And now when I read The Odyssey, I... I find all of these layers of meaning and um, wisdom and uh, different interpretations that challenge me. And again, now my experience is, is that the Odyssey is reading me uh, versus me reading it. And, and that, I think, comes from knowledge and love. Um, but the first time you read a novel, just go ahead and read it for the plot. Just go ahead and read it to find out what happens next. And then, and then as it unfolds before you, I think that you must take into account those overarching themes that tie it together. But those open up as you, they're like a wine, right? They have to be exposed to the air um, in order to reach its full flavor. So another question here about, and we could talk about that concept. We could have eight episodes just on that probably. I would um, love to. And, you know, Karen... Writes books about stuff like that. So, you know, 
There's always those available to you too. But Julia asked a question, which we have touched on before, but I want to at least give Karen a chance to talk about because I don't know that you've ever had a chance to give your perspective on this here on the show. And she says, we've talked about how it's unreasonable to judge characters or interpret their actions according to contemporary standards. I'm struggling to articulate why this isn't moral relativism. I understand that it's not. It's, it's an understanding that culpability is a piece of the puzzle and individual culpability is impacted by time and place but I'm having a hard time coming up with a brief way of articulating the distinction between being a moral relativist and not reading an anachronistically. Um, so how do you, how do you respond to that, Karen? So I would, I would just tweak what she's saying a little bit. I would say it's not that it, it's not impossible to judge a work by contemporary standards we shouldn't judge it solely by contemporary standards. So, so, so in other words, we have to hold intention. We have to judge a work of literature by universal transcendent truth, which means understanding that the time in which it was written um, has obstacles to knowing and seeing that objective transcendent truth, and our time does as well. So, so a work is, is great because it does contain some, you know, universal truth about the human condition and eternity, whether implicitly or explicitly. And so we have to judge it by that, but, but that requires judging it both by our time and so it's, is, is, I guess. is that tension, is, is that what the job of the teacher is to, to help readers, um, that's that's how I approach my job, and that that's why I have a problem with, and, and I'm sure you guys would, with only employing mm-hmm. some sort of school mm-hmm. of literary criticism, or only, you know, I, I I mean, I love close reading, and that's the thing that we need to do most. But close reading alone is not enough. Like so, close read, like extreme close reading. Well, the two, you know, so formalism or aestheticism, which is where close reading, you know, that alone um, judges a work only by itself mm-hmm. and not some outside context. And so it mm-hmm. needs to really be both. It needs to be the balance of judging the text for what it says and how it says it against the context, which the context is the time it was written in, but also our context and the larger context of, you know, mm-hmm. unchanging universal truth. Howdy. Yeah, I really love that. I think that the the danger of any individual and any generation is to equate the way that we or I think about morality or relationship to equate that with transcendent eternal truth, like you're saying. And so I, I think that Jane Eyre is a really great example of that because now we have kind of this idea that any kind of gaslighting of a man towards a female is now an unforgivable sin, right? So we look at Rochester and we think by by cultural standards right now, he's beyond redemption. He's beyond the pale. And the book challenges that. The book says, is it possible for a man to come back from that? to be healed from that and to be, and, and to love a woman, even after having been that man, right? Now, modernity wants to say no, right? And so what I think the book challenges us is to say, is it possible that what we think is this eternal, unchanging, transcendent truth about what a relationship is supposed to be, is it possible that it could be different, 
And, and so it challenges some of those core assumptions. Um, and in saying this, I'm intentionally stepping on some toes, knowing that how some readers are going to, how some listeners are going to respond to that, right? But that's what the book is trying to do. And I think that's what we're saying when we say we need to judge by, when you're saying, Karen, we need to judge by in eternal, transcendent, unchanging truth, capital T truth. Absolutely. As Christians, that's what, that's our goal, right? But none of us are actually there. None of us can do that ever. And when we think we can, we've reached some kind of height of arrogance, right? And, and I think that novels continually poke at that in us, in me. I'll say me. I don't want to make that claim for anybody else. I know for me, novels make me say, oh, maybe I'm judging too harshly. Or, oh, maybe I need to make a sterner judgment here. Maybe the standard by which I am evaluating these characters and their choices is flawed. And this novel is exposing that in me. And I'm, I, I'm hopeful that along the way, I will have the grace and the courage to say, oh man, this novel really taught me not to do that because I learned then that I'm judging it by a standard that isn't actually eternal, unchanging truth. And so I can repent of that and then hope and repent of that, see that character or that choice differently. And then hopefully if I encounter that in my real life in IRL, then I will have learned something along the way um, by reading so that I don't, I hope, I'm hopeful that I don't have to make those mistakes IRL. I can kind of get it somewhat through the novels indirectly so that then when I encounter somebody like Rochester in real life, I might be able to make a better judgment or Sinjin, right? Um, give him a chance or I'll say, oh, because of what I read in Jane Eyre, I've got like a big red flag thing going on, you know? So there's, there's this tension that we have between the standards that we hold and what a novel exposes in us. And then of course, that capital T truth. And those three things I think work together in some kind of beautiful harmony. I wish I could put that in a smaller sound bite, but that's kind of the best I got. Karen, do you want anything else to move on? Okay. Again, it's always a little abrupt, but let's talk about Sinjin. How do you just mentioned him? It's a couple of questions here. We did touch on this a little bit, but I, I feel like we should try to conclude our thoughts or at least wrap up some of our thoughts on his character and the ending of the book, because we did get some questions about it. So Jennifer, I'm going to read, basically there's three questions here that followed on top of each other. Why does Sinjin get the last couple pages of the book? There's this beautiful reunion in the denouement and then we get an awkward part about Sinjin's letters and him approaching the end of his life. So what is Bronte doing there? And then she says, uh, Amy then says, I believe one of you said in a previous episode that the final couple paragraphs can change the way you interpret the whole novel. So she was waiting for that explanation, but wasn't sure that it was fully explored. And then Katie then followed up on that by saying, the very last line is given to Sinjin, and it's one of the best lines in scripture, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So she wants to know what Bronte is doing there. So we've got, we've got Sinjin getting the end of the book. What's, what's going on here? And then why does it... I, can't, I don't remember, was it Karen? Was it you who said that the, the way you think about the final paragraphs can change the way you interpret the novel? Or was that Heidi? I think Heidi said that, Would I think, you? but I, but I had also said, you know, to pay attention to that. Um, well, let's talk about this a little bit. We got yeah. plenty of questions yeah. about it via email and yeah, on the thread. Yeah, yeah. So Karen, you want to go first? Um, sure. So, uh, I mean, there's a lot we could say about this, but, but uh, so the last two paragraphs are, you know, so the first 
line is Sinjin is unmarried. He will never, he never will marry now. This is a novel that's been about marriage for, you know, at least on the surface, the, the, a love story. Um, that's the big, the big plot point. Um, and so we end with, you know, Sinjin not being married, Sinjin, um, you know, anticipating his coming death and his, um, and, and his re- reunion with, the Lord. And it's all, you know, it's, it's not just that he's unmarried, but that he has devoted his life to Christian mission and he's been, Jane's been corresponding with him. So he is a family member, you know, he's become a family member. He is a loved one. He presents a different picture of what a Christian life can be um, besides the one that Jane has found. And so I, I, Again, we talked about this a little bit last time, but just the fact that there's more to the story than just reader, I married him, and we get more about about Jane and Rochester. But yeah, I don't know. I, I want to hear Heidi say how it changes the whole interpretation. But it's it's just, it, it, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Heidi. Because I think exactly what you said, it changes the perspective from Jane and Rochester tied up with a neat little bow. They get to be together and have children and whatever. It And it puts our eyes then as we close the book on a dying man who never has a companion through life, right? And that that's Jane's last thought in telling her own story, I find to be an incredibly intriguing ending to the story. I do not have a neat little bow for it. I just find it fascinating that that's our last glimpse. And you know what it makes me think of is Shakespeare. Is it when you have in the comedies, uh, you have the wedding, and then often the last line of the comedy or the last image of the comedy is on the rejected male friend of the groom, right? We have that in um, Merchant of Venice. Uh, There's a left out character in Twelfth Night um, and As You Like It. Like you have these these weddings and then there's always a, a male character off to the side who didn't get matched, right? And so you leave the story that ends with a wedding with this image of isolation. And then we also know that Sinjin is dying, right? And about to die. And so the book ends with, it begins with abuse and ends with mortality. And and it ends with this kind of reminder that there is no neat little bow in this story. This was a this was a dark tale, right? Um, and uh, I, I I find that intriguing about Jane specifically the characters. Again, this is me, right? The character psychology. I could never write a paper on this because I find it very mysterious. Um, the fact that her last thought of a man in the story is of Sinjin and not of Rochester. I find that intriguing, and I'm not sure I can explain it. Um, but it what I like. Karen about unmuted it, herself. Maybe she is, can think she can. I like <laughs> that it undercuts that neat little bow. Yeah. So go ahead, Karen. It's my, even it, it might no, have just been instinct by I, Charlotte yeah. Bronte. 
Go go ahead. I, I right yeah, and I and I think now maybe I understand the I, I have an answer to my professor's question so many years ago because because I'm looking now at um you know near nearer to the end last words when she says she's talking about Sinjin. No fear of death will darken Sinjin's last hour. His mind will be unclouded. His heart will be undaunted. His hope will be sure. His faith steadfast. His own words are a pledge of the a pledge of this, and so. I've never thought of this before, but but so Sinjin has no doubt, no fear. He has certainty, which I think is an implied contrast with Jane. Jane has lived the life of risk and she has, you know, she is united with, with Rochester. But as we've already talked about, Rochester had to be like maimed and hurt. Like this isn't a fairy tale ending. It's a realistic ending. And I think it also, Jane has chosen a life of risk, which always means less certainty, some fear, and the things that Sinjin has, you know, he, Sinjin has rejected that. I mean, just go, just go on Twitter <laughs> or don't and encounter the people who have absolutely no questions, no doubt, no uncertainty about anything. Mm. Yeah. And, and uh, interact yeah. with them for and a while. And interact for them or don't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, there was an interesting question about um, Sinjin's name. I just want to give credit. I can't. F- okay. Anne said, given that Bronte was so intentional with names, I'm interested in what you all think about the dichotomy between how Sinjin's name is spelled and how it is pronounced. It can't be a coincidence, can it, that he has such a holy looking name on paper that when spoken aloud has the word sin in it. Any thoughts on this? I had never thought about that before. But I like the I like the close close reading. Karen, you want to, you want to address that? <laughs> I just um, I I was going my, before the question was finished. I went in an exact opposite direction. I I really just think Sinjin is named after Saint John because he's saintly, um, and I think the British pronunciation is just like that's just. It sounds weird to us, but it wouldn't have sounded weird to Jane. That is just how any sin any you know saint in front of a name would have sounded yeah. but i mean it's it's possible but i also want to point out because i don't think this ever came up but the name rochester um pretty much since the 18th century in england is almost always associated with with the earl of rochester and his body poetry so um so rochester is kind of like a name that would connote a sinful kind of guy um and sinjin would be the opposite that was that was my observation but so yeah, it is. I mean, go ahead. I think, yeah, I just think, I think I would say Sinjin's name is, would have to a British person just sounded like Saint. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I just reread go- Gaudy Knight a couple, uh, and there's a character. The Say- Sayers novel. Yeah. Sayers novel. And yeah. there's a character named St. George. And I had always just read it Saint George until, and then, and then I'd this time I read it properly in my own head and I felt like I was growing as a person. So. <laughs> so here's an interesting question for you. This comes from Laura. I've been thinking lately, she says, about how living a life of virtue is often synonymous with living a life of suffering and pain. It's the Christian paradox. To be low is high. To be low is to be high. The repenting soul is the victorious soul. The broken heart is the healed heart. To have nothing is to possess all, etc. So who is the virtuous ideal in this novel then? Who is the ideal of suffering well? Helen, Jane, St. John, Rochester? What do you think? I 
I think Jane, first of all, she is, she is, I mean, unequivocally, she's the hero of the story. I also think that uh, for the most part, Karen said earlier that we don't have black and white characters other than Brocklehurst. Um, and that's true. Uh, even Aunt Reed is given some kind of humanity there at the end um, through her suffering, not through her repentance, though. Right. She's not held up. She never repents. But we are moved to co-suffer with her through Jane. Right. Um, I but I, I think that in terms of all of our main characters, including Sinchin. We do have uh, a picture of the Christian pilgrimage as a movement from darkness to light throughout, maybe not a complete one, but we do have that growth um, in the human journey towards salvation and towards growth um, and actualization, I guess, is a modern word, but I can't think of another more, a more appropriate one uh, in all of our, in all of the characters. So I don't think that Jane is contrasted with Rochester or with St. John, um, but I think that she is the one who suffers uh, and is redeemed the most fully in the novel. Karen? It's such a good question. So I think if virtue was kind of the, which it, which it is, the moderation between an extreme of um, deficiency and excess, Jane has kind of been that all along. Um, and Rochester's had, you know, he has found virtue by, you know, becoming moderated and i think sinjin has too um become moderated i mean we don't have a lot of detail on that but he certainly is remaining steadfast in his faith and and in uh and uh ready to to die at peace so that suggests something um so jane has been the most virtuous all along but the others have become more virtuous i think i would say hmm. I, the phrasing of the question was is really interesting who who what who is the ideal sufferer? How's the who is the virtuous ideal in this novel? Who, who's the ideal of suffering? Suffering well. I mean, mm -hmm. Helen mm -hmm. absolutely suffers well. She suffers less pages, but she's a, she's a good sufferer. <laughs> she does, but I think I think that, um, and I'd have to, it'd be hard for me to find this passage now. But I think that 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 she also she in order to suffer well she has to sort of deny deny the goodness of the world mm. um the earthly existence yeah, yeah, yeah. and so i, I think that might be a little bit going the other you know a little bit away from the, so the that's where virtue being mean. balance mm -hmm. yeah, yeah 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 uh rachel has a question about bertha um she said she loved the conversation about bertha and wants to hear more rochester's account of her descent into madness doesn't add up for me she says he describes her insanity in absolute terms uh, she has no virtue and it's described with a demonic and bestial language but this is so abstract why he does say that she is intemperate and unchaste and describes her foul language and screaming during the storm but that isn't much much as far as concrete examples or evidence of these strong claims. Would it have been improper to give Jane a maiden more details? Was it common to equate depravity and insanity such that proof of one would be proof of the other? Would Bronte's readership have seen Bertha as so subhuman that more 
specific evidence just didn't matter. Heidi, you want to touch on this one first? Yeah, this is a really, really common accusation leveled against the novel that uh, Bertha is unrealistic, that she represents, she's she's portrayed as like the demonic feminine and blah, blah. There's also, by the way, some really some really good and solid kind of Freudian interpretation of this aspect of the novel. And then there's some really crazy. So I wouldn't necessarily go looking for it, but there's this idea of the crazy woman in the attic and as being kind of representative of the id is a really common way to interpret this aspect of Gothic literature, specifically in Jane Eyre. I, and I kind of, I kind of dig that kind of thing just because of my background in psychology. Um, but it's really important to understand that this would this would have raised no eyebrows at the time. That this is this would have been a very very common way of understanding madness. There was not a humane uh, understanding of how to treat uh, people with mental illness at this time. So yes, in, ter- if, in terms this this is a great example of how if we go back to the time period of the novel, <laughs> that we will if we accept it wholesale we will actually not make a right judgment about this novel because at the time Bertha would have that nobody would have rolled their eyes and nobody would have questioned this they, she would have just been insane unchaste kind of lost a child of perdition that this and and Rochester would have been held up as a hero for even treating her as a human being and feeding her and not letting her die um and so Again, as I've said before, this is to me the most troubling part of the novel because it is wrong. This would be the absolute wrong way to treat a human being in the image of God with mental illness. But at the time, this would have been considered realistic. And she was violent too, as mm-hmm. yeah, because that's um, I mean, nobody would have questioned. Nancy, who helps me out the story here, she brought this up because she was violent and she couldn't have just he couldn't have just put her in a you know, and then in a in a, in a in an asylum would have been they were terrible. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not. Yep, it's better for her to be locked in the attic. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Karen, you want to touch on this? I agree with everything that Heidi said, and it, really, I, I, you know, not to 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 get too specific, but I, I live in a, I live a few miles from a a huge colony used to be called the colony that is just finally being closed, uh, but where you know much more recently in the, in the 20th century people were locked up mm. and treated Shock treatment uh, you know who had and, mental illness yeah. and mm. yeah it, it's just this is not you don't even have to go to the 19th century this was stuff was happening and is happening in the 20th century um so it you know it's not unrealistic at all and i and of course you know charlotte bront i i think she did a masterful job as a young woman who probably had no training whatsoever in any of this to kind of describe what was uh, the commonly understood ideas of the time i think you're bringing up a great point because i i mean now we do believe that we are more humane in the treatment of severe mental illness but i'm not sure that it's more humane to put people to like stick them in a wheelchair and drug them until they die so the idea of mental illness, a severe mental illness, people who are truly unable to re-engage in society in any kind of what might be deemed a normal way. The idea that we have progressed beyond the mistreatment of such humans is naive at best. Um, But I also think it is important to say that Bronte and her time was certainly wrong. (laughs) And we uh, may, in order to make a right judgment of the novel, do need to be able to look at Bertha's treatment and say that was a great tragedy and we're not upholding that at all. 
Yeah. It can be a tragedy as we read it, but also mm-hmm. realistic for Bronte to exactly. portray it the way she did. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, we're constantly learning new things. I mean, like I've been thinking about this a lot as we've been, you know, like at the beginning of the pandemic there, we thought we knew exactly with, you know, there are all kinds of things we thought without a shadow of a doubt were a fact, right? We were being told that anyway. And then now we look at it and a year later, mm-hmm. those things weren't fact and we've got new facts and whether, you know, things are constantly changing. And so if it's changing in science, <laughs> you know, over, over a year, how much, yes. things, you know, things are just, the, it, it, as we soon as we start being the guy on Twitter, ever been. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As soon as we're the, the guy or woman on Twitter, not willing to accept that they're, position could be mm-hmm. wrong or need to be adjusted then well then you become the guy on twitter then you become a twitter user okay so you have time for a couple more yeah, we do i just and i just want to say is twitter the modern day attic <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes yes um, although although if you one. get locked there you actually go crazy you don't know yeah, so. that's true yeah okay Heidi, I want to ask you two quick questions here relating to comparing this to Rebecca because we got some of these questions and I'll let you have the floor on these ones. Jeff did say, Heidi, my daughter, Anne wants to know whom you like more, Rochester or Maxim. So you can answer that. And then also there were a couple of questions whether you can compare the unnamed narrator from Rebecca who subsequently became called Plamanda on the show with Jane. So those two questions, comparing both the two different sets of characters, the women and the men in this book. Karen, um, we'll give you a little uh, two-minute break here. Yeah. Uh, so um, definitely Rochester. I love my broody romantic heroes. I will take Lord Byron's all day long, twice on Sunday. <laughs> I love them. But I do like Rochester much better than Maxim because he goes through a conversion and because his love for Jane is so front and center and prominent. And, and Maxim is just a little more withdrawn and difficult to read. So I like my broody heroes, easy to read as well as me. So um, I, in terms of Plumanda versus Jane, there's some really significant differences. Uh, One is that um, our unnamed narrator from Rebecca does not progress in virtue. And Jane is a virtuous woman. And it is intentional. It seems very intentional on the part of um, de Maurier to present with uh, us with a heroine who, who is willing to degrade herself for the sake of her love. She is willing to, to morally compromise in order to stand by her man. Whereas Jane uh, is willing to sacrifice her life, but not her virtue for her man. And in, and in that case, of course, I am team Jane a hundred percent. And we have we do have a very important moral dimension in Jane Eyre that is absent from Rebecca. Rebecca, I would say, is literary fiction. It's a great story. It's really fun to read, um, but it does not have a moral center the way that Jane Eyre does. Um, and the, the development of the personhood of our unnamed narrator uh, in, in, in Daphne du Maurier's novel is contingent upon the fact that she's willing to sacrifice her virtue to stand by her man. Um, And Jane's the opposite of that. Um, And so I would hand Jane Eyre to a 12-year-old girl in one hot second, and I would not. Rebecca. Hmm. Okay, a couple more. Um, Devorah 
asks this question. When Jane realizes that she and Rochester actually hurt each other during the last night with Sinjin, why does she keep that to herself? Why not tell him that she hurt him too and it wasn't just in his head? Karen, what do you think of this? Oh, that's a good question. I never noticed that before. Is that what happens? She just narrates it to us and doesn't tell him? Yeah, I remember I was thinking that too. And so I was wondering if I was just confused or just missing something. But it does seem like she doesn't say, hey, you know, don't worry. You're not crazy. And it might just, maybe maybe I missed something though. Yeah, Heidi? I think she says she just doesn't want to interrupt him while he's talking um, at the time. Let me see. Let me see if I can find it. If you want to ask a different, an, another short question, I'll, I'll try to find that. See if there's anything more to it. Uh, okay. Here's one that we can do probably without too much thought. Do you get, do you have, um, either of you have a favorite movie adaptation of this, of this book? Karen, have you seen any of the movies? Uh, I, I've seen two of them. And I like them, but none of them get everything in it. So I'm, I'm not like, I don't, yeah, well, I watch them and then I'm done. So I don't, I'm not, I can't be like, oh, that one and whatever, whatever. So. And you don't spend a lot of time. It just is what it is. And you just kind of move on. You yeah. don't get all about it. Yeah, no, no. Same with Pride and Prejudice. I don't, yeah, I'm not like, yeah, I, I enjoy watching them, but I'm not. Um, I liked the one, the most recent one, I think I saw in the theater. It was good. Yeah, yeah that one had a that one had a big Fassbender. budget. It was made by yeah, yeah. Michael Fassbender, Carrie Fukunaga, yeah, like yeah, big yeah. budget and all those kind of things that yeah. make for an interesting yeah. yeah. Uh, Karen, while she's looking for that, I'm going to ask you another one I got here via email. This is from Elizabeth, and she's referencing the Virginia Woolf passage that I the famous essay on this that I that I mentioned. She says when Virginia Woolf wrote, "quote and to be always in love and always a governess um, is to go through life with blinkers on." I was intrigued. Do you agree? that Jane is, quote, always a governess. Does taking care of blind and crippled Rochester mean that she is in that role forever? And what does Wolf mean about the blinkers? So Wolf writes, and to be always in love and always a governess is to go through life with blinkers on. What's your take on that? That take by Virginia Woolf. I mean, I think that's an argument that that many, especially feminist critics make, is that, um, that the fa- you know, and I think I've mentioned it before, that the fact that J- Rochester has to be, you know, emasculated and maimed in order for Jane to end up with him is not equality or not, you know, a, the, the feminist dream. Um, and so I think that's kind of what, what uh, Wolf is getting at is that she's, she's not found full human, her full humanity by ha- ending up with someone who had, who's, whose masculinity is, is, chastened um in order for her to be with him heidi any luck yeah i did and i was wrong which probably many listeners are already yelling at their speakers right now it's on the top of page 729 here it is reader it was on monday night near midnight that i too had received the mysterious summons those were the very words by which i replied to it I listened to Mr. Rochester's narrative, but made no disclosure in return. The coincidence struck me as too awful and inexplicable to be communicated or discussed. If I told anything, my tale would be such as must necessarily make a profound impression on the mind of my hearer. And that mind, yet from its sufferings too prone to gloom, needed not the deeper shade of the supernatural. I kept these things then and pondered them in my heart. So she's protecting him from the weight or the gravity of this miracle. Um, and the, the book does not tell us whether or not she eventually discloses that. Um, 
But in that moment, she fears it will kind of crush him under the weight of such a such a very great miracle. Um, and uh, because he's in, essentially in too vulnerable of a position. And so that is an interesting thought contrasted with the, the last question you answered on whether or not Rochester was so strong and virile and masculine that he had to be kind of, you know, chastened and weakened in order to be, to, to you know, meet with a with a little fragile woman. But instead, directly after answering that question, we have Jane protecting him from something that would crush him, but she is strong enough to bear, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. we really do not have an unequal on either side in this marriage. What we're, what Bronte is giving us at the end here is a couple that is fully equal and worthy of each other through the sufferings that they've gone through. Got another kind of Penelope and Odysseus, right? We have um, Jane and Rochester who bear each other's burdens, um, protect and shelter each other with their own particular masculine and feminine strengths. Right, but I, the feminist critics would say they are they are equal only because but the, the equality, Jane's equality comes because Rochester is weakened. He, right. So, right. so she, that's the only way that they, they're equal, but um, only because, because Rochester had to be weakened instead of Jane being stronger. So how do you, how do you respond to that then? Is it one of those things where it's like, we're not defined, we, we don't, the value systems are so different that that's not something someone who makes that claim would like your side is not something they're just going to ever come. Right. I mean, I, I think, I, I think I would say that, that I wouldn't necessarily disagree with them. I, so I, I don't think that the, crit- the critics who are saying that are complaining. They're just saying, this is how it was for like that. The, hmm. Okay. I see what they're, you're saying. They're, they're, they're I not think saying they're, it's a flaw in the book. Right. They're saying right. this, look what this, what this novel shows us about, about the, the world. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah, about the exactly. experiences of a woman like this, Wait, right? Which is a t- is to temper, you know, the romantic reading of oh, Jane, oh, Jane ended up with the man she loves. Isn't that wonderful? And it's just to right. say, well, it is wonderful, but look at what had to, you know, she couldn't meet him on equal terms until he was weakened. Right. Um, yeah. And I, but I do want to. I am so glad Heidi found that that passage because I, we talked about the last line in that passage about mm-hmm. her pondering. Yeah. Um, this in her heart, which. But apart from the other ones, um, I I think this is brilliant because in a way, what uh, Bronte is doing here with Jane is is just she's adding some realism by saying, like Jane saying, this is so unbelievable, like th- that this happened. It really is unbelievable. It's so unbelievable mm-hmm. that I don't dare share it with him. So like, yeah, so he will she, never believe me. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I, it's it's really pretty good. It's pretty brilliant. I I remember reading and thinking how it gets this, it almost gets into like a, there's almost a fantasy element to it. And then the book's like, it's just a miracle. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I remember being like, oh, you know, that, that actually works. I actually accept that. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, So Elizabeth also asked the question, she says, what significance is there to the fact that in chapter 38, Jane finally refers to Rochester as my Edward. She says, my Edward and I were happy and not my master. Mm -hmm. And then likewise, is that supposed to be connected in some way to the fact that the last we hear from Sinjin, it starts with my master in referring to God. Hmm. And is there any, how do you, I mean, hmm. obviously Jane does refer to him because she, well, he was her boss for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so that was, he. Res, she responded to him in the way that she felt was respectful. And then there does become an equality and she responds to him by his name. But then I think what that's about- br- I think that's brilliant. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great, uh, 
great connection there. Mm -hmm. And I, it speaks for itself. I've never made it before. It's so she answered her own question by asking it. Yes, exactly. Those are the best questions. Okay. There's a lot we could do here. I feel like we probably should uh, call it a day here. Let's, I mean, if you, I want to make sure you each have a chance to really go as long as you want to, within reason, on your final thoughts here. So Heidi, I'll let you go first. Your final thoughts on Jane Eyre, and then we'll, we'll uh, have to say goodbye to Karen, I guess. I know. I'm really <laughs> sad about that. Until we get the chipper happy experience of reading test of the durbervilles together <laughs> well the experience will be it will be happy <laughs> we will have a good time yeah we will have a good time yes <laughs> we will <laughs> yeah i i'm so grateful for the opportunity this podcast because it's not that i've run out of things to say about jane Eyre, but i do feel as though I have been given a great gift of being able to make an apology of one of my favorite novels in a modern world that isn't very hospitable to stories of this kind. And so it's been an incredible experience for me. And I don't really have much to say beyond that. So I'm going to pass it off to Karen. All right, Karen, you get the last word on this book then. Wow. I, I, yeah. What an anticlimactic um, way to end. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how do we outdo Jane Eyre? No, it's, um, I, I actually just want to say that um, I, I've just been really gratified doing this podcast, um, following along some of the conversations in, in uh, the Facebook group and, and, and some people on Twitter um, who, who are reading this novel uh, for the first time and even if they don't love it, I think a lot, although I'm seeing a lot of love for it, being surprised at just how good it is and how Christian it is um, and how modern it is in the best ways. And so, um, you know, I, I'm just, you know, I, I guess I just can't wait to see Charlotte Bronte in heaven. Well, I can wait, but it'll be fun when we're all <laughs> there together. So I don't have anything more profound than that. David, well, how about you? Because you began this yeah. not as a Jane Eyre lover, and you've had a conversion experience, I understand. Well, it, it wasn't that I wasn't a Jane Eyre lover. It was that uh, I was, my memory of it, I was going off very shallow memory of it, of having read it. And for one, when I was a lot younger, two, in a classroom setting that went very quickly. I mean, it was a great professor. He mostly read aloud and cried, which was great. But, you know, it was, uh, he was known for his weeping I love through him. his courses. He sounds yeah. amazing. Yeah, he was sounds a great guy. Sounds very ironic. <laughs> yeah, actually, now that you mention it, yeah. Um, and I think those were, you know, the setting helps a lot, the kind of conversations you're having and being able to go slowly and not feel like homework. But then also um, being older, I think, and being at a different place in my life helps. But what I had not, what I was not, I was going to say not prepared for, but these are great books. I, I shouldn't say I wasn't prepared for it. I really enjoyed how just getting to watch how skilled Charlotte Bronte is in all kinds of different little ways um, in terms of her storytelling and being intrigued by the decisions that she made and things like that. But um, yeah, I, I mean, one of the more enjoyable experiences I've had reading a, a novel or rereading a novel in a long time. Um, in part, of course, because of Karen's edition and then being able to have the conversations here. So, But here's the problem now, Heidi. We said Karen was going to get the last word. So now, Karen, you have to say something else so you get the last word. <laughs> She's rolling her eyes at me. I don't make the rules. I just make, you, make sure we keep them. <laughs> well, you totally okay. make the rules. <laughs> what what am I going to say now? What am I going to say? Um, 
All right, I, we might have to edit out the blank oh, here. This is so exciting. <laughs> it's about to happen. No, I, have, I don't know what I'm going to I, I thought you were saying we had to edit out your next words, and I was no, no, no. Edit, edit, oh, you mean edit, like edit out no, the no, time yeah. while you're thinking? Yeah. Yes. yes. Now I get oh, it. See, normally I, I kind of blabber on for a minute to give you a chance to think, but, you know. Um, uh, can, I, can I ask you a question? Yes, you can. Yes. So at the beginning, I asked you if there was something you were surprised about when you were working on the edition. Mm. Was there something that as you were working on the edition that you felt was the biggest challenge? Something that you wanted to most be sure to point out or capture or in your introduction or mm. you hoped that people would most experience or what, however you want to think about it. What was the biggest thing that was a challenge for you as that you, in terms of presenting a book that you love? And that maybe that can be our, our, last, our last thought on this book. Because you obviously had to put a lot of hours into it. You had to, you know, there's the introduction, there's the notes, mm -hmm. there's thinking about layouts and covers and all those things that go into creating an edition like this. And I know there's a team of people, but you had to have been nervous about something, I would imagine, for a book that you love this much. Okay, I just blabbered on. <laughs> you did great. So I gave you time. So. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm... Um, well, <laughs> you, you were okay. just totally confident? Okay. No. <laughs> well, I've taught I've taught this book so much, so yeah, it was just, it was more like just that's true. so so what what I will say about um, creating this volume is that because I have loved it for so long and because I have taught it for so many years, that it actually was surreal in a way to get this and and hold it in my hands and have my name on the same cover as Charlotte Bronte's and I did take a picture on uh and shared on social media a while ago of like about half of my editions of of Jane Eyre but I've been rearranging this summer and I have more I probably have 10 or 12 editions of Jane Eyre uh in my possession and then there's this one that has my name on the cover and it's just like it's it's like only the Lord could have done something like this because I never would have planned or dreamed it. And that's, I guess, just what I want to say is that mm. um, the Lord has done this just as he did um, for Jane in her life and her fictional mm. life. Mm. Well, thank you for putting in the work and uh, being available <laughs> for that work. <laughs> Next, we're going to be doing All the Pretty Horses by Cormac McCarthy. It's going to be a very different experience, very different kind of book. Uh, Tim will be back. It's obvious, as most of you know, who are longtime listeners, All the Pretty Horses is a heart book for Tim and uh, to use his phrase. So we're going to dive into pages one through 59 um, for the first episode next week. Um, and so, you know, if you haven't got your copy of that, get ready, get ready to hear Tim wax eloquent about a book he loves much in the same way as Karen did about this book that she loves. So we'll be looking forward to that. And I guess that's it. I guess we've done, I guess we finished Jane Eyre. So I guess it's time to say goodbye. So for Heidi White, and for Karen Swallow Pryor, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Mm -hmm.